Well, my Bible is open now to Romans chapter 6. I would invite you to turn there with me, as that'll be our focus of attention this morning. If you have a prayer slip, a visitor slip, if you'd like to pass that to the center aisle, we'd gladly collect that. And maybe you have one, um, since I didn't announce it, <laughs> and want to hand it to me in the foyer, we'd gladly receive it from you, um, and we'll lift you up in prayer. For those visiting, we're so glad you're here. Uh, I, I'm just always reminded how you could be other places doing other things. We're glad that you've come to be a part of our worship this morning and pray that God would speak to our hearts together as we open his word to Romans chapter 6, which is the, where, we're, where we've landed uh, in our journey through the book of um, Romans. Romans 6, I want to look at verses 12 through 14 in particular and pray that it would speak to us as we look at this statement of Paul, we are not under law, but we're under grace. What does that mean? And we'll share that at the end. Some years ago, I read a book entitled, Why Johnny Can't Preach, which was written by David Gordon, and it provides a challenge on why preaching uh, has taken really a hit from thoughtful, prayerful exposition of scripture to TED Talks and motivational um, speeches helpful hints on how to self-improve you, uh, your, your person and your, your career. Gordon refers to the educational shifts in our culture that has little patience with reading texts of scripture, or anything else for that matter. And I think really at the top of it all is this device, um, which grabs our attention and we're looking for sound bites. And so the aptitude and the patience to enter into a text of scripture and really think about it for a sustained period of time is almost a lost art. And that's his whole point. Gordon refers to these educational shifts and, um, and how it has impacted really the health of the church. Uh, many people aren't really serious about thinking about doctrine. Um, and I think at the heart of it is uh, something we all contend with, and that's pragmatism. Uh, you know, we appreciate when things work, and by pragmatism, I mean, does it work? Is it efficient? Is it helpful? I mean, when I plug in my GPS, I don't want a 25-mile route to get to my home. I want it to be efficient and streamlined and to get there. However, there are some things that require thought and patience and determination and I think that's why God has given us a Bible where over 50% of it is a narrative and we're having to think through um, issues and teaching and doctrine and, uh, and that that really becomes the foundation of our life. And so uh, what I would appeal to us all is love the Bible. Give your, heart, give your heart and your life to understanding what the message of the Bible is. And cast the anchor of your soul there. It will hold you fast with the promises of God. We live in this culture of pragmatism, which insists that if any message is valuable or useful, it must be convenient and efficient. It must be user-friendly, which is a dated term, I know. User-friendly. We, we must be able to access it. Uh, pragmatism demands that in order for something to be beneficial, it works quickly, which puts it at odds with the whole letter of Romans. Um, this is one of the reasons I would just remind you to, to build your life around a local church. I thought I was supposed to build my 
life around Christ. That's the way you build your life around Christ is uh, in a local church because Jesus died to save the church and he loves the church and those who follow him in faith are to meet together and to live life together. Uh, In the picture of the New Testament, you see believers believing, repenting of their sins, believing, being baptized as we saw this morning continuing in the apostles' doctrine and living their lives together. In reading the book of Acts, you get the feeling in reading the book of Acts that everyone was saying, essentially, we couldn't make it without each other. And that's God's design. Uh, For the, you know, when I think of the picture of the New Testament church, establish yourself in a local body for the truth that you will hear. Have you done the math on how much is lost by negligent church membership? How many times you miss the word? How many times you miss an opportunity for a brother or sister to speak into your life truth that would have made all the difference in what you're facing? It's expensive. It's quite a loss for the fellowship that you miss, for the partnership in the gospel, for the spiritual growth where you are taking away from your connect group or other gathering uh, through this worship service. You're taking away truth that you need to keep you ballast, to keep you balanced in this world. With such a commitment, it's well-pleasing to Christ who is our Savior. He died for the church and those trusting in his saving work will love what he loves. And so gathering together, we hear the word and we walk through it slowly sometimes. This is our 47th installment in the book of Romans over the last 18 months. Um, some things need to go slow. We don't always go slow, but this needs, to, needs some plowing into our life. And so pragmatism has little patience with the deep dives into understanding foundational truths, which put, puts it at odds with the Apostle Paul in this entire letter. We want things that work. We want to tweak our life. And it's amazing how God will take truth and bring it to light and show us the way that we're to press on in faith So for five chapters, Romans one through five, for five chapters, Paul explains in detail the tragic human condition and the only remedy for sinners to be reconciled with God is through Jesus Christ. No commands are given, Romans one through five. It's just stating the way things are. No exhortations are offered and we read in vain if we are hoping for a quick fix to personal improvement. It declares to us that we're sinners. It it declares to us the extent extent and gravity of our sin and how sin forces, um, that that sin as a force is at work in our heart, but that there is hope in Christ. There is hope in him for God put him forth to bear our sins and he rose from the dead that we might have eternal life. Praise be to his name. So in Romans 6, the subject changes. We move from justification, 
by faith that in order for my relationship to be right with God, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm justified, which means declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven by faith in the righteous one, Jesus. In chapter six, it speaks to our sanctification, which means the life we live to be conformed into the image of Christ and to grow in holiness. It talks about the believer's battle with sin and we are offered the ongoing hope that we're no longer under law, but under what? Grace. The grace that saved us in Jesus Christ is also conforming us into his image for the glory of God. So from this saving relationship, we're justified and we're set on the path to grow in Christ. From this saving relationship, God is calling us to grow and change. Why is that so hard in the Christian life? Why is that so hard? I think maybe at the root of it, and I'll close with this, but I think there's a difference between receiving Christ by faith, which we're called to do. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe on his name, receiving him and treasuring him. Do I really treasure him? Do I really long to live for him? Is he the treasure of my heart? And I pray that God would make that clear and we would grow in our love for him. So let's begin with this. If um, you're looking at the insert, truths uh, about our sanctification. Number one, truths about our sanctification. Just following the text here. First, uh, consider it done. Consider it done. You are dead to sin and alive to God. And I would just point you to verse two, which gives an important question, which I believe Romans six answers. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Talking about believers. How can we who died to sin in Christ still live in it. There's a sense in which everything in this chapter answers that question. And notice the we, speaking of believers, in contrast with what he was talking about in Romans 5 with Adam. In contrast to being an Adam, we have died to sin. And I think this understanding who died to sin is critical to understanding our position in Christ. Now, I don't want to break your back with a bunch of Greek verbs. I don't. But this one's important, really, really important. It speaks about, it's in a tense, the aorist tense, which refers to a single action that has taken place in and and been completed in the past. So Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is coming back again. That happened in the past. If you're a believer, there was a moment when you turned from your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ in the past. So Jesus' finished work is once and for all, and there came a point, if you're a believer in him and a recipient of eternal life, that you believed on him in the past. When you believed on him, you died to sin and entered into a union with Christ. His death and, and, and resurrection, you, you're in him Buried with him, raised with him as baptism pictures to walk in newness of life. So the tense refers to a finished past action. And it's explained in verse 11. 
so you also must consider yourselves dead. Well, I don't feel like I've been dead to sin, Pastor. It's a struggle every morning. I understand that. But I think at the heart of it, what Paul is putting forth here for us to believe is we need to consider it done. I'm a new person. I'm a new creature. I'm in Jesus Christ. My sins have been paid for. My future is secure. He is with me always, even until the end of the age. I need to consider it done. That I have died to sin and have a new life in Him to where I follow in obedience. Notice secondly, sin's cravings can reign in our bodies. I know what you're thinking right now, no kidding. No kidding they can reign. Sometimes they seem overwhelming. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Let it not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Yes, it is true. A believer can get off the path, enter into sin. One thing leads to another and they're in a ditch. Filled with doubt and confusion and despair. That happens. Which is one of the reasons why we need to build our life around a local church where we're hearing warnings like that. I don't want to go in the ditch. I really do love Jesus and I want to live for him. So how do we deal with these cravings? I think I mentioned to you before that Gwen taught at St. John Lutheran School when I was in seminary. We have many great memories of that. She taught third grade. She had a little boy named Blake and they were coming in one, uh, one day after lunch and Blake entered the classroom and he took the light switch and went off and on, off and on, off and on. And Gwen said to him, Blake, why did you do that? He said, I just had urges. <laughs> I just had urges. Don't we relate to Blake? Sin's cravings can reign in our bodies. And so Paul gives a command, let it not reign. Easier said than done, Paul. I didn't say it was going to be easy. The command is, let it not reign in your mortal body. Sin is crouching at our door, so says God to Cain. Its desire is, is for you, but you must master it. We are accountable to, for our decisions. I, I was drawn to a passage in Numbers 32 where Moses is outraged at the tribes of Reuben and Gad because they wanted to stay behind on the east side of the Jordan River and not come over. And he says, what's your problem? Why are you withdrawing from support from your, your people? And they say, listen, we'll, listen we'll, Moses, we understand. We'll, we'll build some towns for our little ones and make a living here, but we're going to go over. When it's time to fight, we're, we're going to be with you. We're locked at the hip. And Moses said, okay, if that's your word. And it's within that context, Moses says to them, but if you don't, be sure your sin will find you out. Isn't that the truth? I think one of the great deceptions of sin is, you know, I can get away with it. No, you can't. Not, not, not with a God who's omniscient and omnipresent. He sees everything. Be sure your sin will find you out. And so I think when we read this command, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that we need to say, no more excuses, Lord. I need to come to terms with this grip in my life. I don't want 
these cravings to steal my joy and to rob me of my fruitfulness in Christ. No more excuses, no more deflections, no more blaming other people, no more blame shifting, no more ignoring. Don't let it rain in your life. That's a command. In light of who you are in Jesus Christ, don't let it rain. Run if you must run from it. But don't let these cravings reign in, your, in our bodies. Notice thirdly, sin is not dead in the believer. This is a, a corollary, a kinship with the previous one. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. So, sin, I've died to sin, but it's still operative. I still have a sin nature that I'm dealing with. John Stott writes this helpful summary. This reckoning, this counting it done, considering it done, is not make-believe. It's not a legal fiction. It is not screwing up our faith to believe that we do not believe what we do not believe. We are not to pretend that our old nature has died when we know perfectly well it has not. Instead, we are to realize and remember that our former self did die with Christ, thus putting an end to its career we are to consider what in fact we are, namely dead to sin and alive to God, like Christ. Once we grasp this, that our old life has ended, with the score settled, the debt paid, and the law satisfied, we shall want to have nothing more to do with it. God bless that Anglican scholar. Not wanting to have anything to do with it. I think the part in the struggle maybe with you today could be is, you know, I like my old life. I like my old friends. I like my old entertainment. I like my old whatever. And God's calling you to break from that because he has something better for you. And you don't believe him. And so you walk between two decisions. You limp between two decisions, and it's miserable. So why don't you surrender to his call in your life? Say, Lord, what needs to go today? And give me the courage to do it so that I might live for you with all my heart. Notice, fourthly, our struggle with sin occurs in and through our bodies. (laughs) That's another (laughs) no-duh. No kidding. The life you live, you live by the, through the agency or the activity of your body, which has a soul and a spirit. It says in verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Your bodies, the bodies we live in, We live our lives through our bodies and we engage in all sorts of things, don't we? And in the course of living the life that we have through our bodies, we eat food because we need to sustain sustain ourselves. But a craving for food out of balance leads to what? Gluttony, food disorders, idolatry of food, and a host of other things. We need drink to quench our thirst. But in the beverages that are available in this world, some are drawn towards alcohol, and one thing leads to another. 
You know, every alcoholic had to have a first drink. And it becomes a deep addiction that rules their life. Sexual desires. God created you as a male, as a female. He created you in such a way to enjoy and experience sexual relations within the confines of marriage. Outside of those boundaries, it's a train wreck. Outside of those boundaries, it brings guilt and shame and problems galore. God's given us sleep because we need it, don't we? But out of order, on one end, you become the sluggard who rolls around on his bed and never gets to work, and on the other, you have the workaholic who never sleeps at all, and both are out of balance. God has created all things for us to richly enjoy, and may we know the balance of that. Our struggle with sin occurs in and through our bodies. What is it in your life that has a grip on you to come to the place where, Lord, I, I want you to reign completely in and through me? And you can't do that. You can't even want to say that if you don't treasure Jesus Christ. You don't, you don't yield to that level without a love for the person you're yielding to. And I think that's at the key for any change in us as Christians. Notice fifth, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. He, he says here, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So the Christian life is an ongoing presenting ourselves to him as instruments of righteousness. Now that word instruments, it's translated that way in the ESV. And I think that's unfortunate. And really, in my study of that, it's weapons. Present your weapons in this warfare called the Christian life. The Greek word is hopla, and it means a tool or an instrument, a weapon, a plural in arms. It's used in 2 Corinthians 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Present the weapons Present yourself as weapons for righteousness in Jesus Christ. Notice nextly, um, the power of Christ enables us not to sin. Without Christ, we're not able to say that theologically, biblically. But the power of Christ enables us to overcome sin. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. And he said in the preface, the gospel is only for sinners. For those who recognize their need of it, many Christians think of the gospel as for only unbelievers. You're lost today, your need is for Jesus Christ, that is our message. But we never graduate from the gospel. We never move on from the gospel. We never move, okay, we've, we've done that about, uh, about the cross and the resurrection and what God has done through Jesus. Now let's move on to something more beneficial and pragmatic. That's not it at all. 
Once we trust in Christ, Bridges writes, so the thinking goes, we no longer need the gospel. But as I seek to bring out uh, in this work, the gospel is a vital gift from God, not only for our salvation, but also to enable us to deal with the ongoing activity of sin in our lives. So we still need the gospel every single day. And you think about, you know, Jesus' dying prayer is that we would go and sin no more. And to bring the gospel, Lord, based upon the power of your death, based upon the payment for my sin, the blessedness of our forgiveness, I battle, I present myself to you, myself to you as an instrument of righteousness. Listen to the words of this faithful pastor who I read this week in my study. Oh, that the church, the lukewarm, worldly, half-hearted church would realize that the Christian life, the only life that leads to heaven is a life of competing desires. Who do I love more? Treasuring Christ is essential. Not merely receiving, as precious as that is, I must receive him by faith, but... May that receiving be marked by, I treasure him. He is the pearl of great price. He is the one I long for. And that your sanctification and mine, growing in holiness, growing in obedience, is based upon treasuring him. If you do, if you do uh, value Christ... If you do value Christ, if you do, do not treasure him, that's a contradiction in terms... Build your life around that call of treasuring him, learning to love him more, spending time with him in prayer, spending time in his word, drawing near to him, lifting your voice in praise to him, talking to him throughout the day. If you do not value him, if you do not treasure him, if you, build, if you do not build your life around his calling for your life, your sanctification, your growth as a Christian will be a frustrating journey. It'll be viewed as an, he'll be viewed as an imposition. Why are, you, why are you hassling me about this, Lord? He'll be an imposition in your life, a nuisance in your life. And if that carries on for very long, you do need to ask the question, am I even a believer? And so our sanctification is an upward progress Sometimes three steps forward, two steps back, ongoing until the day we see him. When our faith is made sight, then our sanctification will be over and we will move on to what the Bible speaks of as our glorification, our glorification where we will be without sin in his presence forever and ever. All right, point two, which is not nearly as long as point one. Point two, the fight is on for a lifetime. I thought I, I was over that. No, you can't. <laughs> that happens. I'm so discouraged. I thought my life would get easier. And e I don't know who told you that. I didn't. I didn't tell you that. The Bible certainly doesn't tell us that. The fight is on for a lifetime. Fight for what? That sin would not reign in our bodies. It would not reign. It 
it's, a, it's on for a lifetime, a battle for a lifetime. Are you ready for that? I didn't know I signed up for that. Yes, you signed up for that. Jesus said in the Gospels, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Paul in the same letter of Romans said in chapter 12, present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Will you remain steadfast to the end? I was reminded of an episode in the life of Martin Luther when he was on his deathbed. One of his partners um, in ministry came to him and said, Martin Luther, do you still affirm the doctrines that you taught? And he said in German, yeah. Yes. I affirm them to the end. He also said, I would rather the heavens fall than one truth of God be lost. The fight's on for a lifetime. So if you're wanting your Christianity to be an excerpt from chicken soup for your soul, you'll search in vain to find that in the Bible. It's blood, sweat, and tears, friends. Often calls to, call, calls to suffer for his namesake. Knowing all the while that if I'm not ashamed of him in this world, he will not be ashamed of me before the Father in heaven. I'm taken to, if you've ever received a card from me, you've probably, I can't remember ever not putting it on a card. <laughs> it's Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Running the race, isn't it? Would you look with me at Hebrews 12? Let's um, leave Romans 6 for just a moment. We'll come back and we'll close there. I love this section of Scripture. I, you know, I'm not into life verses, but if I was pushed in a corner and said, what's your life verse? This would be it probably. Because it comes right after the faith chapter in Hebrews 11. And he says, with the, therefore, referring back to everything he said in chapter 11, which is basically, if you want to please God, it's by faith. And then he says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and he's referring not so much to onlookers, but those who've walked the walk. Let us also lay aside every weight. This is sanctification. If you're going to run a race, you're not wearing weights. You're not wearing a suit or a jacket. You, you got all of that off of you. Lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so close, closely. That's sanctification. I'm laying it aside and I am running with endurance. That means when I wonder if I can ever get past this, that means if I, I'm filled with despair, wondering if I can overcome the, the challenges of my heart, I will run with endurance, and this is what will keep me on in the race, looking unto Jesus, verse 2, looking unto him, remembering him, remembering his death on the cross, remembering that the tomb is empty, remembering that he's in heaven and he forever lives to make intercession for me. And that he's pledged never to leave me. I'm going to run with endurance, looking to him. He's the founder. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And despised the shame. 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, lest you grow weary and lose heart. The fight is on for the rest of your life on who you're going to live for. And then thirdly, you're not under law. You're under grace. And I pray this would be an encouragement to you as we close here. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. What does this mean? Does this mean the law is bad? No. The law of God is good if it's used usefully. And it is a schoolmaster, it is a tutor to lead us to Christ. In Galatians 4, it says in verses 4 and 5, but in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. At the right time, at God's appointed time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Our great and awesome Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was born under the law to redeem those under the law. And several things come to mind when I think about this, and that is, under the law, we're all in great danger. Why? Well, because we are judged by God's law. And if left to give an account of ourselves, we would have no advocate, we would have no appeal, we would have no case. There is a great danger here. We need, we need his redemption. We need his forgiveness. We need his reconciliation. Discovering and embracing this truth about your condition before God as a sinner is the only way the gospel will ever be amazing to you. To see yourself as a sinner, alienated in rebellion, numerous transgressions against God's law, destined for a devil's hell and eternal punishment if you have to answer for it. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I think that's why a lot of people yawn at the gospel. They really don't understand the danger of it all. Such thoughts are often dismissed out of hand. That, that, that's too negative. Why do you want to ruin our lunch with stuff like that? We wanted to come to church and feel good about ourselves. That's too negative, too judgmental, too preachy, too stale. Jerry Bridges, in, again, in his book, Respectable Sins, in the 20th century, C.S. Lewis noted that the barrier I have met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. And more recently, New Testament scholar um, D.A. Carson commented that the most frustrating aspect of doing evangelism in universities is the fact that students generally have no idea of sin. They know how to sin well enough, but they have no idea of what constitutes sin. That's why I always share the Ten Commandments when I share the gospel. Abbreviated, no gods before him. No idols, don't take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't be a liar and don't covet. And when I ask, how have you done in keeping those? If were, the response is, I'm pretty good. You know, I, I politely try to say, you're not really understanding. 
at all. Especially when you think of Jesus enlarging sin to include your thoughts and intents of your heart. If someone says, I'm pretty good, and then lists the details of their resume, I'm thinking, there's something you need to know. And that is you're a sinner who has broken God's law not once or twice, but many times over. And if you only break it once, the book of James says you're guilty of it all. That's sobering. One time, my transgressions are in the thousands or more. So there is a great danger in being a lost man. There's a great danger in being a lost woman. There's a great peril to live without Jesus Christ. You don't know what a day brings forth. Jonathan Edwards, in the most graphic quote, he says, the unbeliever walks over the pit of hell on a rotten bridge. If you're under the law, you're accountable for the penalty of of breaking it. And if you've broken it once, you're guilty of it all, says the word of God. I also notice when Paul says in Galatians 4 that Christ came under the law, he he kept it perfectly. Of all the things we could say about Jesus, New Testament is clear that he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. And he obeyed the law perfectly so that when he died on the cross, it was God's righteous payment for sin. There'll never be another There's no sacrifice you can offer that will reconcile you to God. Not your church attendance, not your good deeds, not the fact that you're loved in your HOA, none of that. Christ came under the law, he obeyed it perfectly and died that we might have forgiveness. So we're not under that. If If I'm under the law, that means I have to come up with my own righteousness. Paul says you're under grace, which means Christ is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. Think of the struggles of your life, the sins you battle. Worry and frustration, that's a sin. Yeah, not to trust God is a sin. Worry and frustration in life. What kind of witness would that be if I walked around worried and frustrated? You can tell when you talk to people that they're worried and frustrated. Discontentment, ingratitude, complaining and grumbling is Doug brought to our attention. Pride. Oh, in all the ways pride impacts our life. Selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience and irritability, judgmentalism, Envy and jealousy, sins of the tongue, worldliness, loving the world, longing for the approval of the world, moral impurity, on and on it goes. Think of the sins that you struggle with. Treasuring Christ means I'm going to call these sins in my life what he calls them. And I'm going to present my body as a weapon of righteousness for his purposes. And I'm going to seek him about putting these things off 
And knowing that the fight's on for a lifetime, I won't be discouraged because I'm going to be looking to him, the author and finisher of my faith. And he who has begun a good work in me will continue that until the day I see him. I receive that the law is good. It's a schoolmaster to lead me to Christ. But if I'm under the law, I will perish Believer, living under grace means that your position with God has changed from sinner accountable for payment of your sins to sinner redeemed with the power in Christ to overcome sin and to live for the glory of God. Properly understood, this should produce gratitude and our life's motivation to live for Him. So when I fail, when I sin, when I mess up royally, I confess it. I shouldn't be shocked that I'm capable of anything apart from his power and grace in my life. When we fall short and make a mess of things, we repent and begin again. And he delights to showcase showcase his grace in and through us. Oh, friends, be focused. Give your, your full attention to what it means to be conformed in this sanctifying process into the image of your Savior and know that he's there to forgive, not as something we presume upon, but as something that gives us hope. Hope. Years ago, I read this little piece called Beginning Anew, and it's a scenario with uh, a teacher with an elementary uh, student. And the teacher writes, he came to my desk with a quivering lip The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, teacher? I've spotted this one. I took his sheet all soiled and blotted and gave him a new one all unspotted and into his tired heart cried, do better now, my child. I went to the throne with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day all soiled and blotted and gave me a new one all unspotted and into my tired heart cried, do better now, my child. What a wonderful Savior he is. Wonderful Savior he is. And he's worthy of everything. He's worthy of our devotion. Let's bow together in prayer. As we come to this time in our service, it is a time to surrender. It's a time to yield. It's a time to get right with God. It's a time to take a long look at our short life, to reevaluate our priorities, and to give our heart completely to Him. And so... If you're without Christ this morning, we point you to him as a worthy and awesome Savior. Would you turn from your sins this morning and would you receive what he accomplished on the cross? Right now, understanding your sin, understanding God's love through Christ, would you call out to him? Oh, Lord. I'm a sinner and I come to you and I confess to you my sins.
And I know my only hope of being made right with you is through the finished work of Jesus. His death and resurrection, I have come to see you for me. And I come now by faith in your promises and in the person of Jesus. Come into my heart, come into my life, make me the person you want me to be. Maybe this morning um, you were convicted. You heard this morning uh, three testimonies from the baptistry and you've lingered, you've wondered uh, about this, you've delayed it. It's time to obey him. And maybe you're a believer and this week's been hard And you've been reminded in so many ways of past failures, present failures, not measuring up. We have a wonderful master who longs for us to come to him. And we come now. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would bless these closing moments, that we would be completely surrendered to you. In Jesus' name, amen.